Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at NordVPN, celebrating a birthday this month. Hey, get a uh, free gift and a free month when you order a two-year plan at NordVPN.com slash GoodSeats and use the promo code GoodSeats. Yes, that's NordVPN.com slash GoodSeats, promo code GoodSeats for your free month and free gift when you order a two-year plan. Now, here's our show. Your narrator is Oscar Reichel. This is the home territory of the Pacific Coast League. From Seattle to San Diego, more than 1,700 miles apart, our splendid teams play, taking in Portland, Sacramento, Oakland, San Francisco, with Hollywood and Los Angeles in between. In the top leagues of the East, the American and National, the longest distance is some 900 miles between Boston and Chicago. But our great league of the West regards such spaces as but normal. And to reach the 18 million people in our territory, long jumps from city to city are commonplace. Like the Pacific Ocean, we too stretch along and connect the cities of the entire coast. For 43 years, the Pacific Coast League has been flourishing in this territory. Its president, a gentleman famed in the national baseball world, Clarence Rowland, will tell you more. Baseball fans, I am pleased to present to you, through the medium of this film, an inside picture of our Pacific Coast League. We are now in our most important season, for this is the year in which we have declared our intention to become a major league. And this is the year in which we shall seriously go about proving our point. In this great Pacific area where we play, we have approximately 15 million people, more than enough to bring our league up to the peak in baseball. You will no doubt be familiar with many of the names and faces of the players in this film of our spring training. For those who have not achieved great fame, are on the verge of it. The 1946 season is here, and our clubs are giving you the best in baseball. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hooray for Hollywood. Oh, hi there, friends. It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. How you doing? Uh, it's Good Seats Still Available. Yes, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. How you doing? Thanks for coming by and uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, etc. You caught me in a little bit of a Hollywood moment. Yes, uh, Hollywood, California, uh, home of the stars. And in this case, in particular, specifically, the Hollywood stars. Yes, the team from the Pacific Coast League which is our topic this week with our guest, Dan Taylor. He, the author of the great new book from Roman and Littlefield called Lights, Camera, Fastball, How the Hollywood Stars Changed Baseball. And like the name implies, the uh, stars of Hollywood were uh, backed by a, uh, a cavalcade of uh, a performing stars, as they were uh, the investor group behind this team. Uh, but we get into uh, all the various facets of, uh, of the time the era, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, uh, of, well, not 60s, well, the early 60s, 
because uh, obviously the um, Major League Baseball finally discovered uh, Los Angeles and the West Coast and San Francisco and and kind of put a dent in the Pacific Coast League. But before the Dodgers and the Giants kind of uh, began this uh, uh, discovery, shall we say, of California and the major leagues, uh, the Pacific Coast League uh, was the thing. And, and as you heard in that clip there, uh, the season preview of the 1946 Pacific Coast League season, uh, there was uh, a, a an ambition to perhaps make the PCL uh, not sort of uh, just the top tier in the minors, but literally to make that jump into major league status. And we'll get into that uh, that part of the dialogue with Dan in a, in a couple of minutes in our conversation. Uh, but uh, you got to remember that prior to uh, the late 1950s, when the uh, Dodgers and Giants bolted westward for uh, the Golden State, you, you had uh, top tier professional baseball in the forms of the San Francisco Seals, the Oakland Oaks, uh, the aforementioned Hollywood Stars, the Los Angeles Angels, their crosstown rival. Yes, that was the name of the team. Uh, and this is obviously a predecessor of the what became the American League expansion franchise known as the California Angels, the Anaheim Angels, and now the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Yes, that's where the original name Los Angeles Angels came from was this team in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, the Sacramento Salons, San Diego Padres. Yes, that was their uh, name prior to the uh, Major League Padres expanding in the late 60s. The Portland Beavers and the Seattle Reniers. Um, and there were a couple of other fits and starts of other teams uh, in the PCL. But uh, those were kind of the major ones that stuck around for the longest period of time. And again, uh, this was a uh, top tier major league, if you will, not in name, of course, baseball. On the West Coast, as it was uh, was growing into its own, uh, millions of uh, of uh, consumers of baseball and 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 high quality play at that for sure. Uh, but we're going to get into the uh, specific story of one of those teams of the PCL, the Hollywood Stars. And yeah, as we get into our conversation with Dan Taylor uh, in a few moments' time, uh, there were actually two uh, officially incarnations of the Hollywood Stars. There was a uh, a version from 1926 to 35, which was the original incarnation of the Sacramento Salons, uh, which was a charter member of the PCL. We uh, we do uh, we we tip our cap to that a little bit, uh, but uh, the the main thrust of our conversation and this great book uh, is the 1938 to 1957 version of the Hollywood Stars, which uh, actually got their start as the uh, Vernon Tigers. Uh, they became the Mission Reds. Uh, and then, frankly, just uh, became ultimately the, um, uh, well, we're part of the sort of San Francisco uh, phenomenon. They were uh, the rivals of the San Francisco Seals for a long time. And then they uh, essentially moved in 1938 to uh, become once again the Hollywood stars after the first version uh, decamped for uh, San Diego. So there's a lot of intrigue here. But the Pacific Coast League uh, is is the background of this story. And uh, for those who grew up uh, at the time, uh, would remember and uh, would fight you on uh, just uh, how high quality the play was and uh, the memories. These, This was essentially Major League Baseball, uh, again, short of the name, for everybody concerned up and down the West Coast of the United States. And, and again, in Los Angeles, the rivalry between uh, the Stars and the PCL version of the Los Angeles Angels 
uh, was as heated as you would find anywhere in not just in baseball, but in sports generally. Uh, in L.A., these were uh, out and out derbies, right, between uh, two of the um, often title contenders, but certainly the most uh, uh, visceral rivalry you would find in the PCL. Uh, and in the most uh, major of markets of the Pacific Coast League, you had Los Angeles, which was essentially becoming in its own right, I, I guess, the third largest media market and then uh, soon to eclipse Chicago over time. So you had uh, plus, obviously, the center of all things entertainment, uh, film studios and, and a budding and robust television industry. So uh, the the uh, Hollywood stars and the uh, the uh, the angels, the, uh, the Los Angeles angels were on television and radio regularly. I mean, these were like these are top tier media uh, 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 offerings and the games were broadcast live uh, in the uh, in the Southland. Now, it's ironic because uh, we we search long and hard uh, to find, at least on YouTube and, and in a sort of the generally available Internet clips to find uh, some game footage. And, and alas, it uh, it eluded us. Uh, we'll get into some of the reasons, perhaps, as to why those uh, uh, clips of those games are, are not uh, readily uh, uh, available or easily found. Uh, but, uh, you know, I we, we'll get into it. But Dan and I pretty much are of the belief that uh, there is absolutely uh, footage and uh, and audio of uh, a bunch of those games, especially the derbies between these two teams in L.A., to be found and to be had. And um, yes, did it overlap these games uh, with uh, the uh, Hollywood uh, investor base that uh, was to be found in both of these ownership groups, in particular the stars? Uh, you bet there were, uh, you know, uh, ample opportunities for the uh, players uh, to uh, make cameos and, and and make a little extra coin, uh, either, uh, you know, trying to, uh, uh, you know, replicate uh, their baseball exploits uh, for for film and 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 or side jobs in the television industry, for sure. And look, the uh, uh, the the ownership of this Hollywood stars franchise reads like a who's who of of celebrities of the time. Uh, Lloyd Bacon and Gary Cooper, William Powell, uh, George Raft was amongst the ownership group. Uh, George Burns and uh, Gracie Allen, uh, Bing Crosby, Cecil B. DeMille, uh, the great William Frawley. Uh, yes, of uh, I Love Lucy fame as Fred Mertz, of course, uh, part of the mix. Um, uh, all kinds of uh, Gene Autry, who uh, ultimately became the owner of the then uh, soon to be uh, uh, expansion franchise that became the Los Angeles uh, Angels of Major League Baseball. Barbara Stan. I mean, we're talking like the who's who, if you will, of uh, of uh, uh, Hollywood stars, literally and figuratively. And uh, even the the owner, the main owner of the um, of the of the team uh, had his own uh, sort of uh, fame, if you will. Robert Cobb, um, one of the uh, major uh, majority owners uh, of this Hollywood stars franchise. He was the owner of wait for it, the Brown Derby restaurants, very famous at the time and, and still legendary. And yes, that last name Cobb might ring a bell. That's the guy who the Cobb salad was named after. So this is a team, the Hollywood stars that is just uh, full of all kinds of tangents uh, in and around entertainment uh, and all kinds of stuff related to that. And we get into all of that. It's a, it's a great it's a great chat and uh, again this this book is fantastic it's called again lights camera fastball and uh, the author of it is our guest this week his name is Dan Taylor and that conversation is coming up in a few moments time uh so let us uh 
waste not much more time. Let's get uh, a promo uh, out there, shall we? How about, uh, let's see, let's flip the cards this week and let's go to, how about Streaker Sports? Sure, why not? StreakerSports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Uh, of course, they can be found at StreakerSports.com and the promo code is GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases. What is Streaker Sports? Well, as the name implies, it's uh, a hefty dollop of teams and leagues uh, franchises no longer around, either previously domiciled or defunct, stuff that we love to roll around in on this show. Uh, you name the league, you name the team, chances are really good that streakersports.com will have uh, either a shirt or or some other form of garb uh, to commemorate said franchise or league. Uh, but also great stuff, too, in terms of pop culture. If you've been watching any of the hoops this week, uh, Billy Raftery, one of our great... Uh, 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 basketball, college basketball announcers, uh, the Onions Collection uh, uh, is available for you there and all kinds of other great stuff. Uh, you're a fan of Slapshot, some great stuff there. You're a fan of, a fan of Caddyshack, some great stuff there. All kinds of great stuff. Uh, go there early and often. You'll find some wonderful stuff. And again, at Streaker Sports, streakersports.com. Promo code GOODSEATS, 15% off all of your great purchases and uh, we uh, thank Streaker Sports, as well as all of our great sponsors, for uh, their support of our little showgram. Uh, and uh, let's, again, not waste any more time. Let's dig deep, shall we, into the story of the Pacific Coast League, and in particular, the Hollywood Stars. Here's our conversation with Dan Taylor that we had just a couple of weeks back. As always, please sit back and enjoy. Well, why don't you um, uh, give our audience a little bit of, uh, of the Dan Taylor story first, because uh, that'll maybe help give us a little bit of a sense of sort of your uh, your adjunct into uh, the story at hand, that being of the Hollywood stars and the uh, the intrigue and the uh, and the reason behind the book in the first place, if you don't mind. Well, my background, I spent 30 years as a television sportscaster out here in Fresno, lately uh, working in corporate PR for a large uh, fitness equipment manufacturer and keep my fingers uh, in the media doing uh, some of the television for our local minor league ball club. That kind of traces back to my start in, in, in uh, media work was uh, actually being the PA announcer in the minor league park here in town when I was a high school, when I was a high school senior. Um, and a few years ago, I, I was approached and uh, really had the good fortune to be asked to uh, uh, collaborate with uh, the legendary scout George Genovese to uh, write his autobiography, A Scout's Report. George is an amazing guy, probably the greatest scout in baseball history. And what was really interesting is our, our many, many conversations. We became great friends in the time we spent together and in and, and times at Dodger Stadium. Uh, George loved to uh, reminisce about the two seasons he played with the Hollywood Stars. And he could, beyond just reminiscing, he would actually draw connections to things that we were seeing in the stadium uh, to their origins being with the Hollywood stars. And I had never heard these things before. I thought it was quite remarkable and really struck me that this ball club was, was a very, very innovative club. And one of George's closest friends, a fellow by the name of Artie Harris, who was one of the scouts in the movie Moneyball, grew up in the shadow of the stars ballpark, Gilmore Field. And he filled me with a lot of stories and made a lot of introductions and brought a lot of context uh, to information and, and stories that I was hearing. And the next thing I know, the sleeves were rolled up and uh, contracts were signed and I was working away on this book. What, what did you think you knew about this team? Because I, I think the name 
even for the casual sports fan probably is 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 known especially amongst a certain generation right just for the fact that at least the second incarnation and we'll get into the wrinkle of that in a minute too um obviously uh was uh the side uh show for uh a who's who of hollywood stars at the time right so i think there's sort of this just general uh, and the name, right, just kind of flows neatly off the tongue, right? I think people kind of maybe even hazily just say, well, yeah, baseball team. I think I remember hearing something along the lines about that. What What did you know about it aside from the sort of inkling that you were getting from, from your pal at the ballpark? Well, before George started sharing all this with me, I, like so many people who love the game of baseball, associated the Hollywood stars, as you allude to, with the movie stars. And they were the team in the movie stars. Uh, but I, I honestly didn't know how deep that connection was. Uh, I had seen articles over the years and uh, about all of the movie stars that followed the team and, and that on any given night, there would be quite a number of the biggest entertainers in the industry in, in that ballpark. But I, I had no idea that you know, there was probably a dozen and a half that were part of the ori original ownership group. And beyond just uh, turning out for games, they were very involved with the club. I mean, on bat day, you would get Clark Gable and Bing Crosby and Barbara Stanwyck passing out the bats. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I knew of the, of the background and the connection with the motion picture industry, but uh, not much else. And that was a real eye-opener to learn the things that I learned about them. Right. So so how do you begin this this journey then? Because as I alluded to, there are kind of two, if you will, versions of the Hollywood stars with a couple of years in the 30s uh, in between them. But they're they couldn't be more diametrically different. And by the way, their histories are also uh, officially kind of different as well. Do, do you even consider sort of the first incarnation of the stars? Do you do you go back to the Pacific Coast League and it's in its origins? How do you kind of frame this or do you kind of just keep this sort of with the shall we call them the, the later slash more modern and sexier star uh, uh, driven uh, version of the stars? Well, I certainly I certainly delve into the history of the original, the Bill Lane owned Hollywood stars who moved out from Salt Lake City in 1925. I don't get too into it because you're right. They were completely different operations. Uh, and it was really the, the second incarnation of the Hollywood stars, the Bob Cobb driven Hollywood stars that were the innovators. And that's really the emphasis. It's telling their story, but really trying to bring to light uh, their innovations. And, and I, go back to the origins of that particular franchise, which were in the Los Angeles area in about 1910. They were originally known as the Vernon Tigers, which is a small industrial area, a lot of the meatpacking district, if you will, of Los Angeles. And then they moved to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, they were always second fiddle to the Seals. They were the Mission Bells, the Mission Reds, the uh, changed their name two or three times up there. And then uh, never really got any traction in San Francisco. And then in 1938 came to Los Angeles. Uh, the Angels let them move in on the provision that they were going to get their own park built. And then uh, they really they went broke. They, they, their owner was a banker in San Francisco, and he lost some major lawsuits uh, to his investors and had to liquidate. And uh, so it was when Bob Cobb came in and, and bought that club with the Celebrity Investment Group in November of 1939. That, that's really when all the innovation and, and, and the, you know, the flair, the creativity all, all began. But uh, to your point, yes, they were very different franchises. The original, the, the ones owned by Bill Lane, they shared Wrigley Field in Los Angeles uh, with the L.A. Angels and, uh, you know, kind of a bland club that didn't have that celebrity following at all. 
No, but the name obviously very uh, uh, alluring, even if they were sort of bereft of the actual uh, their actual namesake per se. So, but it's interesting. Let's talk about the 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 original Los Angeles Angels for a second, which is obviously more related, I guess, to the the first version. Just for a second, because I think people also in San Diego may sort of say, "Wait a minute, didn't the Hollywood stars become uh, the PCL version of the San Diego Padres?" The answer to that is yes, uh, and they that namesake then actually transferred once the Padres actually got a major league uh, baseball expansion franchise in, what was it, 68 or so. So there's a lot of sort of name sort of overlays and, and confusion and stuff. But but the L.A. Angels, both of the first version of this Stars franchise and, as we'll get into more detail, the second version, uh, I do kind of have a play a, an outsized role in this because, as you're hinting, right, that first sort of um, uh, incarnation was a shared uh, Wrigley Field uh, L.A. experience Um but here, the the idea of an L.A., again, based franchise coming back uh, seems to be predicated on a separate, uh, a separate um, uh, uh, situation, a separate stadium. Um, but but I, does that maybe have some impact uh, in the first year or two? And it's, uh, shall we say, less than stellar, uh, you know, uh, comeback to the Los Angeles area, as you're hinting at. Uh, was the stadium the issue or an issue, the fact that uh, maybe it wasn't stable or, or was that uh, just part of other things that were uh, not do, not uh, sort of palatable for, for the franchise to kind of succeed immediately upon return? Uh, there, there were a couple of issues. One, certainly the stadium. Uh, I think the, the, the Wrigley's uh, who owned and operated the Angels as they did the Cubs, the parent team, uh, they grew tired of, of Lane and company year after year. Uh, indicating that they were close on a stadium and nothing ever came of it. And they, they finally grew tired of it. They were uh, letting them play in their park, uh, letting that version of the Hollywood stars play in their park for minimal rent. It wasn't much at all. And uh, ultimately, they they hit him with the plan that they were going to really jack up his rent to play and uh, continue playing in Wrigley. And it infuriated Lane. He looked around Southern California to see what else he could do. And and uh, uh, Wrigley's uh, the guy that Wrigley had uh, running the club mocked them and and suggested uh, that they just go play at Sawtell Field, which that's currently where UCLA plays their games uh, in the Veterans Complex. And uh, Lane took great offense to that, and then went down to San Diego and met with city leaders in San Diego. And uh, you know, it was a wide open market and a growing city and struck a deal and moved down there and and uh that certainly got the ball rolling to great baseball enthusiasm in san diego it was a terrific baseball town and ultimately got them into the major leagues but yeah the, the stadium situation was was i think the frustration that the angels felt the angels had to sign off on allowing a second team in their territory and and they were telling the pacific coast league that they were getting more and more frustrated with that version of the stars and then uh, uh when they jacked up the rent that was kind of the the last straw and ultimately lane went ahead and moved all right two two questions there that that maybe you can help uh, elucidate a little bit further so number one is uh the idea of coming back to los angeles and being the second team in this market after essentially not succeeding as the quote unquote second team in the San Francisco market. And then number two and related, I guess, is this Pacific Coast League altogether. I think uh, it's lost on at least two generations of baseball fans that, uh, you know, this is pre-Dodgers and Giants moving to the West Coast in Major League Baseball. And for many years, right, this was a very thriving um, uh, league that was uh, on occasion 
uh, maybe even more on an occasion, uh, more than uh, capable of pulling its own weight in terms of talent and play, if you will, outside sort of the supposed major, though regional league, if you will, leagues of uh, of the East and Midwest. Well, let me let me touch first on Hollywood, and then I, I want to expand on on the Pacific Coast League because you've you've raised a great great uh, topic and a great point. I think as you look back on it, it was a little crazy of. Uh, Herbert Fleischhocker to, to bring his team to Los Angeles. I mean, his second team had already failed in Los Angeles. He was failing in San Francisco, uh, uh, but he, he, he had to get out of there. It just wasn't working for him. He did have some business holdings in Los Angeles, uh, had an attorney in Los Angeles and felt that he could get something going down there. Uh, but he was really an absentee owner. And I'll share with you how bad it was for that, that club. There was a point late in the season where the equipment trunk somehow didn't get, they didn't get loaded on the train. They didn't make it to the next city in time for the, for the first game of a series. And uh, the, that version of the stars had to forfeit the game and the coast league uh, hierarchy. They were, they were furious about it and they find the club and Fleischhocker had to sell a ball player. They had to sell a player's contract in order to raise the money to be able to pay the fine to the Pacific coast. Like that's how bad it was. They just weren't drawing at all. And so, Clearly, you know, it did it did fail, and then that's when Bob Cobb came in with his group, and and they were able to get it for a, a, a discounted price. Fleischhocker wanted a hundred thousand, and they got it for forty thousand. Um, as to the Pacific Coast League, this was a great league. Uh, I've talked to so many people in this in the research for this project that grew up uh, during that era, during the, the particularly the latter few years of the the glory years of the Coast League, which runs up to fifty seven before the Giants and Dodgers came west. And it really, to, to baseball fans, it was, it was their major league. You didn't have television. Uh, you didn't have uh, big league clubs coming out. Occasionally, you might get a club coming out for spring training uh, and doing, playing some games. There were a few teams that trained in Southern California and in Arizona and, and would come through for exhibition games. But throughout the, the bulk of the baseball season, the Pacific Coast League for people in California, Oregon, and Washington, that was their major league. And it was very close in, in talent level to the big leagues. Uh, the rosters were made up of players that were just one step away from moving into the big leagues. Guys like Gus Zerniel uh, with Hollywood for a time, Bill Mazeroski, uh in 56 for Hollywood. And, and a lot of guys that were just, uh, they just finished up. They lost a step in the big leagues and they, they were continuing their career, but they didn't have it to continue their career at the big league level. And uh, they, played very well and were fan favorites in the Coast League. So uh, coming after World War II in 46, the Coast League made several attempts to try and gain major league status. They wanted to become the third major league. And at one point after uh, Happy Chandler was out as commissioner and Ford Frick came in, Frick finally developed criteria that the Pacific Coast League would have to meet in order to gain big league status. And he said, we're not going to expand the major leagues by one or two teams. We're going to expand it by an entire league if we expand at all. And uh, the, the big drawback for the Coast League was the quality of their ballparks. In Los Angeles, you had the Angels Park, Wrigley Field. That did meet major league standards. That was the only one. And uh, that was kind of where the, uh, the quest for, for the major leagues ended. That's interesting because also around the time, like certainly 1960 or so in the years a little bit prior, uh, the uh, discussion around the Continental League, right, which we've talked about in a couple of different other episodes, right, the idea of, of maybe that being uh, the third professional league, although not necessarily blessed uh, by anyone in Major League Baseball. Uh, but, but frankly, all fits and starts around 
you know, the, the, a growing country, right? Uh, certainly in the 1950s with a booming economy and then the war being over and uh, leisure time growing and, 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 and disposable income, uh, all that kind of stuff, right? And why not pro sports, uh, perhaps uh, looking beyond, shall we say, than the Midwest and the East Coast roots that, and for all the major sports for that matter, but baseball in the vanguard, frankly, kind of maybe pushing it. But, I, you know, in retrospect, right, you look at San Francisco and Los Angeles, just as as obvious uh, colonizations, shall we say, right now, uh, having grown up in New York with generations of baseball fans, I, you know, I, I it's hard to be objective about that, right? But it it, it certainly, you know, it, it, I think what in not so many words, right? The PCL uh, certainly in those markets and others uh, over time later on, right? Really softened the ground to make this uh, a, a relatively straightforward and. Um, uh, you know, a, a booming baseball uh, business environment for, in both of those markets relatively quickly. Well, beginning in 1941, you had the St. Louis Browns seriously looking at moving into Los Angeles. And the story that has been out there for years is that the meeting was to take place uh, to vote on the, the Browns' move on uh, December 8th or 9th, 1941, and we all know what happened on December 7th, 1941, and and uh, the move was rejected. But in, in researching that, in reality, it had no chance to pass because they, they would have been the lone team west of St. Louis, and travel would have just been very difficult. Uh, the, 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 the plan they proposed was that a team uh, would play in Chicago finish up on a Sunday afternoon, get on a train, which at that time took a day and a half. Uh, and then you would play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in Los Angeles, get back on a train and go back to Chicago and, and start another series there again. And it, it just wasn't feasible. Um, it was really after the war when, when, uh, airplane travel, which Hollywood was actually the first team to travel by plane, but uh, as they softened their stance, because the American and national league presidents did not want their teams traveling by plane. Uh, they, they were really nervous about the idea of, of a disaster wiping out an entire ball club. So once they became more comfortable with air travel, they softened their 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 stance on uh, Los Angeles as a destination for a, a big league club. And Bill Veck in '52 began looking at Los Angeles as a potential home for the Browns. But at the same time, uh, they they wanted a second club. They wanted a club in San Francisco so you'd have a travel partner and you'd come out here for a week or longer and play uh, in in those two cities. And uh, that's that was always a stumbling block as far as coming out. But after the war. California exploded in terms of population and, and opportunities, and and the, the when the Rams came out in '46 and and you had professional football uh, in in Los Angeles, you knew that it was just inevitable that baseball was going to follow soon. All right. Well, speaking of brown, let's talk about that color as it relates to uh, one of the owners, Robert Robert Cobb, right? Um, owner of the Brown Derby, the very famous Brown Derby restaurants. I. I um, He's a restaurateur. How does that qualify him to be a baseball owner? Um, <laughs> but I, I'm going to guess that it has something to do with the uh, the allure that those restaurants or the the main ones certainly had amongst the sort of uh, Hollywood set. Exactly. He uh, started as an employee at the original, moved up to general manager, and ultimately uh, uh, took over ownership of the of the Brown Derby. There were four Brown Derbies uh, in its heyday. Um, the the, the 
principal one, the most celebrated one was uh, at Hollywood and Vine, uh, just down the street from all the studios. So all the uh, radio and movie stars would come in there for lunch. And he built a second one near Beverly Hills that was to cater to the celebrities that lived there and, and wanted a place close to home to go for a, an upscale dinner. And then he had uh, the original, uh, which was the the uh, small restaurant in, in the in the hat formation. And, and that actually uh, as part of the will of his partner when his partner passed he uh, that went to the daughter and then he had a, a third one uh, or a fourth one I should say there was a fourth brown derby he was a sportsman he was an avid sportsman uh, he he was uh, born in Missouri uh, grew up in Billings Montana and uh, his mother ran a Native American Indian team up there uh, she owned a boarding house his father was in law enforcement and he was just an avid sportsman. He loved playing ball. He loved uh, hunting. He loved getting out and uh, and roping um, and uh, was later a, a very avid participant in national skeet and trap shooting competition. Uh, he would break away from his role uh, at the Brown Derby and uh, get together with Clark Gable and Harpo Marx. They would go to a ranch and, and they would uh, rope cattle. Uh, but he loved baseball. He, he was an avid baseball fan. And uh, in, in that November 1938, his attorney approached him and said, I've got this opportunity and I think it, I think you'd love it. And they discussed it. And he got on the phone and the first call he made was to uh, Cecil B. DeMille, the legendary director, who said yes. And then Bing Crosby and Barbara Stanwyck, her husband, Robert Taylor, and then on and on and on. It snowballed and he had about uh, almost 20 uh, of the biggest names in Hollywood all signed up. To, uh, to join him in, in an ownership group to take over the specific Coast League ball club. What's the pitch, literally, uh, in terms of becoming that? Because from what I read or what I understand is it was uh, I, I, any of those names probably or a good bunch of them could have uh, been the uh, sole or major owner by themselves, but it almost feels like there was a uh, almost a, a bending over backwards to kind of make it more of a uh, spread the wealth and or uh, names attached kind of a, approach versus sort of a concentrated ownership. Well, and, and I don't, I, I believe Cobb's attorney is the one that came up with the idea, but it was a share offering. It was $7,500 a share and uh, nobody could own more than one share. And as Cobb was quoted at the time, we want to do this for the community and we want to do this for ourselves to have fun. Nobody's going to make any money. Any profit on the team is going to get poured right back into either team improvements or ballpark improvements. And uh, he just pitched it as, as a community endeavor. And uh, a lot of these these folks, Bing Crosby, for instance, did, he, Bing Crosby was a huge sportsman. We all know about uh, his golf prowess, but uh, quite a fisherman and part owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates later on. And you're right. There were a number of uh, Louis B. Mayer was floated many, many times as a prospective owner of a, of a big league team. Uh, it always seemed that whenever some some team was uh, struggling, there was a year the Cardinals were said to be uh, up for sale. And and uh, Louis B. Mayer and Babe Ruth, I think, were the two names that came up. We're going to buy it together and move it to Los Angeles, which never happened, of course. But uh, there were a lot of baseball enthusiasts, uh, George Raft, Bill Frawley, Joey Brown. They were huge baseball enthusiasts, and, and so he just recruited his friends uh, on the idea of let's do something for the community and, and let's have some fun at the same time. Yeah, William Frawley, I'd love to see Fred Mertz uh, throwing out the first pitch. Let me um, – <laughs> did, uh, uh, did, did you get any sense of all these these names, these stars uh, and or uh, folks within the Hollywood community, Cecil B. DeMille, 
about the reasons individually why they uh, thought this was something that they wanted to do. What do you think it was? Do you, were any of them sort of eyeing sort of the PR potential of it, or was it just for the love of the sport, or just some you know a charitable thing because they wanted to see the Hollywood community thrive? I mean, I'm sure all of their reasons were different, but or maybe they weren't. Yeah, that's a good question, and I, and I don't know the answer to that. I know from some of the things that I read, uh, you know, they were baseball fans, and they thought it would be a fun thing to do. Um, but beyond that, it, it's it's hard to say. I mean, uh, you touched on Bill Frawley. He was a fan to the point where in any contract he signed for any show or motion picture he did, there would always be a clause that he insisted upon that he couldn't be made to uh, to work uh, if the Yankees were in the World Series, and because he was going to go to the games, uh, the stars turned to him and to George Raft at points when they were struggling to find ball players and asked if they could call their their contacts. Uh, Raft was particularly close with people with the with the Dodgers, and and Frawley was extremely close with people with the Yankees. And uh, so, uh, yeah, people who were huge baseball fans uh, seemed to be the the original focus. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck and her husband Robert Taylor. I don't know what what drew them to it. Uh, I think. She was a friend of Cobb's wife at the time, uh, the actress Gail Patrick. Um, but yeah, other than them being great fans, good question. Well, I, I guess Cobb and and Collins, his attorney, were, were thinking that um, at the very least, this was going to be uh, a, an obvious PR machine, right? Because to have all of these stars or folks related to them uh, in the mix and having a, even a nominal ownership, right? Just the fact that if they even show up at a game, it becomes kind of a cause celeb, right? So there's also so, so much ancillary attention, let alone the actual play and the sports uh, casting slash record, uh, reporting. Uh, I got to think that just the, that was just a uh, unmatchable uh, promotional platform that any other team could ever hope to match. Absolutely, but I, I think even more importantly, it was it was instant credibility for a ball club that had a bad name in town. And I think when you look at the, the struggles that the, the stars had gone through in 38, and then you look at the, the, their predecessors as Hollywood stars uh, packing up and leaving town, uh, I think bringing these key people, these key names uh, who were just icons in, in the community, uh, bringing them together you know, brought instant credibility uh, to the team and, and the fact that they put it together in, in a day. I mean, they, it, this wasn't a, a an arduous uh, several month process to try to pull these 20 investors together. Cobb got on the phone and instantly DeMille was his first call and he said yes. Uh, and it was and it was like that. It was a day, day and a half to put this all together. And then uh, the stadium deal came together uh, just within hours. It, it, it was a very quick deal that they put together. And I think you add that to the, the second player that they purchased being Babe Herman, who was a legend in Southern California. He was from Glendale, about a high school sensation and obviously a huge star in the big leagues with the Dodgers and the Reds. Why? Uh, uh, I think Babe Herman brought the team instant credibility in terms of the on-the-field product. So uh, they did it right. Uh, there was no question bringing these people together and then and adding Babe Herman in terms of the roster. Uh, it, it it cemented this team as as uh, something legitimate in Southern California. All right. Well, let, we'll get into uh, some of the sort of uh, uh, the doings and the sort of day-to-day -day sort of game uh, environment and what it was like and stuff. But I, I, I think it's premature before we sort of t talk about a little bit about uh, the stadium itself. Now, we talked about the first year was a uh, sort of a, I don't know, a shotgun wedding, I guess, of, of sharing 
uh, Wrigley Field with the Angels once again in this, the, if you will, of the second incarnation. Um, maybe a little bit of uh, a background about uh, about Gilmore Field, uh, because without it, right, this was not going to sort of last too long, this franchise. So I'm, I'm wondering how hastily considered or built or uh, envisioned all of this was. And uh, for those who are not familiar with the Los Angeles area, um, this stadium uh, sat on what is now CBS's television city. Uh, and uh, there's obviously a story as to all that, but I, a little bit about the field and how that sort of came to be, because it sounded like they needed to get something quick. Well, they did, but uh, Victor Ford Collins, who was uh, Cobb's attorney, had an idea, and uh, and, and I, I'm not so sure they hadn't approached Earl Gilmore with this uh, prior, uh, but Gilmore didn't want to do it, uh, at least not with the previous Hollywood Stars group. But uh, they they raised $200,000 from their share offering, 40000 went to buy the ball club, 50000 was set aside to improve the roster. And then 100000 was set aside for their half of the cost to build Gilmore Field. Earl Gilmore was a, he was an oil man. He had the largest chain of gas stations on the, in the West, Gilmore Oil. He was a big sportsman, uh, very involved with Hollywood Park Racetrack. He sponsored uh, cars of the Indy 500, airplane races, uh, loved his sports, avid golfer. And uh, he, he uh, had a, a large plot of land in what's the Fairfax district of Los Angeles. I believe it was 22 oil wells on the land. And uh, he had built a 20,000-seat football stadium where some of the colleges and at high schools played. And they had midget auto racing in there on Tuesday nights. And then uh, Cobb and, and his attorney, Victor Ford Collins, proposed uh, just a short distance away from the football stadium that they construct a baseball stadium on, I believe 12 acres of, of Gilmore's property. And uh, just across the street is the farmer's market, which is still there today, a great destination in, in Southern California. And uh, they set out, they got it done fast. Uh, Gilmore oversaw the construction. Um, he was a, he was a real tough negotiator. He wanted a percentage of every ticket sold percentage of all the fence advertising. Um, and he wanted his name on the stadium. And they came up with the plan. They built it entirely from wood because Cobb had visited uh, Wrigley Field a lot, which was a big concrete stadium. It's almost an exact replica of Chicago's Wrigley Field. And uh, and Bob Cobb felt that it got cold at night. And he didn't want to subject the fans to that. So he wanted Gilmore Field to be primarily wood. And uh, they got it done fast. Uh, they, the conv the, they convinced the Pacific Coast League to let them open up in uh, in the Angels Park as the visiting team for the first series. And remember, Pacific Coast League series back then, their schedule, you played a team for a week. Monday was always the off day. It was the travel day. And then Tuesday through Sunday, you got seven games in in six days. Sunday was, was always a doubleheader. So they played their first series their, that first week against the Angels in Wrigley. And then they went uh, on the road, and uh, and they had a, a series in Gilmore stadium in the football stadium and they configured that it wasn't ideal but they configured that and got a series in there so it was in early may when they finally got the stadium uh constructed they got it done in five months a little over five months and uh early may they were able to have their first game in gilmore field and and it was constructed very uniquely uh i think to the first glance it would look like really any minor league ballpark uh, you know, a bit of a roof on top press box 
box seats and then grandstands. And then they added some bleachers uh, between the end of the grandstands and then the uh, the foul poles on the in the two corners, uh, seated 10,000. But Cobb, Cobb knew from the restaurant business and, and his dealings with celebrities that celebrities were not going to complain if they weren't happy. They simply wouldn't come back. And he wanted this thing to be uh, right for celebrities. So the boxes were constructed like those at the Hollywood Park racetrack. Uh, and also the Hollywood Bowl Entertainment Complex. They had backing, they had siding, a little bit of privacy, uh, but but a little bit more upscale than what you would see at a ballpark. And then within the stadium, they put a VIP lounge in. I mean, we're talking decades before the Lakers and their Showtime VIP lounge in the old forum. And uh, in that VIP lounge, they had a live band before night games, they had a buffet meal for the celebrities. They had an open bar for the celebrities, and uh, so Cobb and Cobb was a stickler uh, for cleanliness and quality. He uh, he employed a team that that went through the stadium uh, throughout the game, cleaning up uh, wrappers and cigarette butts and whatnot. And I've often wondered because Walt Disney was an original box seat purchaser. And I've often wondered if if that may have been the motivator for him to employ uh, a practice similar to that uh, in his theme parks. But uh, it, people have said, you know, that Wrigley was a big 25,000 seat ballpark comparable to, to the Chicago park. But they've said that even though uh, uh, Gilmore was much smaller, it had flavor, it had character. Very, very different, but a unique ballpark. All right, what's this? NordVPN. Ah, welcome back, NordVPN, and happy birthday to you while we're at it. Uh, it is uh, absolutely essential these days uh, as you're traveling, whether it's down the street, uh, down the road, or maybe even across the globe uh, if and when that occurs again. Wherever you're traveling and uh, you have laptop or mobile device in hand, uh, it is absolutely crucial uh, that you have the protection that a virtual private network affords you so that you can ensure that when you're logging in and checking your email or whatever at a Starbucks or in a hotel lobby or hell, your friend's house or wherever, uh, that your data is not stolen or compromised. And it is easy to do these days. Uh, and the benefits of a VPN are numerous for sure. And NordVPN is absolutely, uh, without question in my mind, uh, the best virtual private network offering that's out there. Uh, and uh, to celebrate NordVPN's birthday, uh, they and we have a special offer for you. You order a two-year plan from NordVPN at nordvpn.com slash goodseats and using the promo code goodseats, you're going to get a free extra month just for doing so, as well as a free gift. Now, I don't know what that free gift is. I'm assuming it's going to be good. Uh, and I will tell you that the service that NordVPN offers is absolutely tremendous. They've got Super fast servers. I think over 5,000 of them now in nearly 60 countries. You want to access your Netflix and favorite entertainment websites uh, from abroad or uh, elsewhere with uh, the protection to make sure that your user information is not stolen. VPNs are going to help and NordVPN is the best way to do it. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Uh, if you're traveling at an airport or a coffee shop, uh, it's tremendous protection. It is uh, probably the fastest connection that I've seen of any of the uh, the VPNs that are out there. And uh, I will tell you, I, it is it's basically flawless. They've got servers uh, in Europe, 
in Africa, in South America, in Canada, all over the place, 24-7 customer support. Uh, you can uh, load up uh, to six simultaneous connections, uh, and it's double data encrypted for increased anonymity. And it works on all the platforms, whether it's Windows, Mac OS, Linux, uh, iOS, Android, you name it. Uh, it's got just about everything you would ever want and then some. Uh, in the realm of a virtual private network. That's NordVPN. And again, make sure you uh, use our promo code when you go to nordvpn.com slash goodseats and use the promo code goodseats and you will get for their birthday greetings a free month of service when you order a two-year plan and a free birthday gift. Again, nordvpn.com slash goodseats, promo code goodseats. Thank you to NordVPN and happiest and healthiest of birthdays to you. And now... Back to our show. What was the uh, the rivalry between <laughs> the Angels and the Stars, right? Because it seems like it, it was just natural for friction, shall we say. And not intense. a friendly version. Yeah, okay. It was intense. I, I've talked to guys who played for either of the teams and also played for either the Giants or Dodgers in the big leagues. And they said as intense as the giant Dodger rivalry has been historically, it did not compare to the intensity of the angels, Hollywood stars rivalry. When they met, there was going to be a brawl. Uh, I think the most infamous was in uh, 1955. Uh, they had a doubleheader in Gilmore field, the two teams. And uh, uh, there was a, a, couple of incidents. Uh, there was a, a player spiked at third base uh, that led to a small skirmish. And then a little bit later, Hollywood's uh, top hitter, uh, Frankie Kelleher, uh, they called him Mouse because he was so quiet. Uh, he was uh, he was thrown at and then drilled in the back. And Kelleher simply dropped his bat and walked very calmly toward the mound. And players said they, they couldn't understand what he was doing. Number one, it was out of character for him to charge the mound. But on the other hand, you know, if you're going to charge the mound, you're going to run after the, the starting pitcher or the pitcher. And in this case, you know, he walked very calmly to the mound. But when he got to the pitcher, he hauled off and belted him in the chest. And they said the pitcher flew six feet back in the air and landed on his keister. And the next thing you knew, there, there were you know, 40 players fighting on the field. And, and it raged for so long. It raged for a half hour. And it was such that the chief of police, uh, Chief Parker, had just gotten home from the beach. He turned on his television set and saw this live melee on the field at Gilmore Field. He got on the phone and sent the riot squad out to break it up. And Chuck Stevens, the star's first baseman that afternoon, told me that when they finally completed the first game of the doubleheader and they got back into the dugout, uh, or got it back into the clubhouse, I should say. There was a, he said there was a guy standing in, in a suit in front of his locker. And Chuck was pretty frustrated and angry over what had happened. And he, he barked at the clubhouse guy to, to kick this fellow out of the, uh, the clubhouse. And the man turned around, held up his badge, and announced himself as the sheriff of the riots or the uh, sergeant of the riot squad. And he proceeded to lay down the law that in the second game of the doubleheader, only the nine players who were in the game were allowed to leave the clubhouse. And if a relief pitcher had to go warm up, he and the catcher could leave. And that was it. Everybody had to stay in if they were out of the ball game. And that was that was the biggest of the of the, of the brawls in their last game ever in 1957. The Angels pitcher was Tommy Lasorda. And he 
throughout the game was throwing at the head of the uh, star's second baseman, Spook Jacobs. And it got to a point where Spook Jacobs finally pushed a bunt up the first baseline and Lasorda came over to field it. And uh, he tried to put a football block on Jacobs and Jacobs tried to put one on him. And the next thing you know, you got 40 players on the field brawling. So Tommy Lasorda, I guess, has a little place in the, the uh, rivalry history as the guy who instigated the final brawl in the history of the uh, the Stars and the Angels. But it was a very, very intense rivalry. Well, besides scrapping on the field and that rivalry, can you can you characterize, uh, was there any characterization of maybe sort of the, um, I don't know, the persona of the fan base for each of these two teams? Because it would seem to me that the Angels organization would uh, be just kind of frustrated by, if you will, the second interloper now uh, with the same name, uh, arguably for a maybe a territory that they felt was originally and maybe still solidly theirs. Well, when when uh, the Cobb Group bought the club, he hired a guy named Oscar Reichel to be the uh, business manager, to run the general manager, we would probably call it today. He had previously run the Angels and had been let go in, in kind of an acrimonious situation. And the 38 Hollywood Club had their offices. The, there was a tower, uh, a, a tall tower at Wrigley Field. Uh, on the first base side behind home plate. And the star's office from the 38 club was in there. And the minute Cobb hired Oscar Eichau, the angels kicked him out. They, they booted him out of that office. And so they actually set up their office temporarily in, in Gilmore stadium. But uh, it's very clear from that moment on. In fact, there were a lot of articles and columns written about, the ejection from the tower. And it said, uh, one columnist said, the rivalry is on and this is going to get good. And, and it did. I mean, there was a lot of animosity uh, right away. Hollywood went out and, and they wanted to, to become very active in player development. They didn't want to continue to buy former big league guys or big league guys that were on the downside of their career. LA had so much talent in, in their high schools and their colleges. And if you waited until a, player got to be a senior in high school and now you're bidding against the big league clubs for him and and that's just a no-win situation for coast league clubs they didn't have the financial resources well hollywood found uh, reichow and cobb found a loophole in the baseball signing rules uh, that the rule everybody followed really only pertained to the big league clubs the 16 big league clubs it didn't pertain to the minor league clubs so they went out and started raiding LA high schools and signing juniors and some really good prospects. Uh, uh, I had a great conversation with Clint Hufford, who was one of them. And he said the morning after he signed a scout for the Yankees and a scout for the Dodgers showed up at his father's gas station and berated them for, for uh, not waiting. Well, the angels were so angry with this, with what Hollywood was doing that they sent their two scouts to do assemblies at area high schools to encourage the baseball players not to consider signing with the Hollywood stars, but to, to wait and uh, complete their senior season and, uh, and consider the angels or big league teams, but ignore Hollywood. So yeah, it, it was, it, it was contentious on the field. There was animosity off the field. Um, and when Fleischhocker had brought the club from San Francisco for the 38 season, the angels gave him a 20 year, uh, exclusion. They they opened their territory up for 20 years. And as it got into the mid-50s, uh, early to the mid-50s, they started making noise to Cobb that they were not going to renew it. And they did. They wanted him out. 
And the Coast League knew that Hollywood was a very profitable club. Uh, the Stars and the Angels were the two best drawing clubs uh, in Southern California, or in the entire league. And uh, so the, the, the league wasn't enamored with what the Angels were doing, but they were within their rights to do it. So, yeah, there, 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 was, there was definitely animosity. But each drew their largest crowds of the year when they played one another in their ballpark. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that uh, they wouldn't uh, jointly recognize that uh, having an in-town in uh, rival uh, was, shall we say, good for business. I, I guess you just, if I'm the Angels, though, right, you know, this is a team that goes way back to, I guess, the aughts, right? Uh, and, and being somewhat successful in those early years through the, the teens and the 20s. I, I, I'm struck, though, but I, when I look at the stats here, and again, I, I, I'm an armchair historian by, you know, by definition, right? So... Uh, plenty of pockmarks and, and holes uh, in my uh, crack assessment of things. But it does look like, right, that the that uh, once this rivalry was in place, uh, the Angels looked to be the more dominant and superior team uh, for much of uh, uh, for much of the 30s and 40s, well, the latter part of the 30s and much of the 40s. But the stars kind of reversed the role pretty much come 1949-50 or so. Absolutely. Let me backtrack a little bit uh, the, how big that angel star rivalry was in either, I'm trying to remember, either 55 or 56. It was actually the angels who approached the Coliseum with the idea of moving a angel stars series into the Coliseum. And their business manager at the time projected that they would easily draw 40,000 a game uh, for the, for a six game series in there. And ultimately they, they, we're not able to pull it off. Um, yes, the Angels, they were L.A.'s team. There's no question. They they were – I talked to so many people uh, who grew up, uh, Angel fans, and, and you know, they, they can recite to you the, the starting lineup of various championship teams. And, indeed, through the through the 30s, uh, they owned the city. They, they were huge. Uh, great crowds, great success on the field. And in 1949, that's when it all changed. And what changed it was Fred Haney. Uh, Haney was a, a, a tremendous athlete in Southern California in high school. Uh, his brothers have been great college football stars in Southern California. And then Fred went off to play pro ball, played for the Tigers, later managed the St. Louis Browns. And when he came home, uh, when, the, when the war broke out, it didn't appear that there was going to be baseball on the radio uh, from a, a lack of advertising dollars. And so he went to Bing Crosby and others. And they put the money together, to, and, and Fred Haney became a broadcaster. He, he was running a liquor store, among other things that he had business interests in, and he became the broadcaster calling the Angels and the uh, Stars home games. And in 49, the they, Stars had fired Jimmy Dykes as their manager late in the 48 season, and uh, they, they developed a really bad reputation for going through managers quickly. Uh, most of their guys would last two years, and either they'd get tired of some of the board members from meddling, or they wouldn't have good success. And for the first 10 years of, of Bob Cobb's Hollywood Stars, they were a second division club. They had a third and a fourth place finish and were quickly eliminated from the playoffs. But for the most part, you know, they were floundering in the bottom half of, of the 18 Pacific sorry, Coast League. Was, was that shortness of patience? I mean, I digress, but the, uh, because of maybe the convoluted ownership structure or so many voices and not nobody running the ship, so to speak? Well, I think I think it was too many voices and, and many of the columnists up and down the state who covered the Coast League pointed the finger at the business manager, Oscar Reichow, as being the guy who tended to meddle a little bit. 
being being a bit of an amateur manager and maybe making some player moves without consulting the manager, things of that nature. But there there were members of the board that that clearly uh, they 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 would meet up after games. They'd call board meetings after games and drag the manager in there to account for the moves he made. And managers got frustrated with it, and uh, and they didn't open up the purse strings to really uh, help them. Uh, put good product on the field. And, and so there was a lot of frustration all the way around. But in 49, uh, one of the board members, George Young, uh, owned a, a large uh, uh, grocery distributorship. And, and he became adamant that, you know, we're being embarrassed and we're doing it to ourselves. And, and we, need to, we need to get the right guy in here to manage and we need to give him the support and we need to get out of his way. And he kept pushing for Fred Haney. And Haney's name had come up previously when Jimmy Dykes was hired and even before that. And both times he had seen how the board operated and he really didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, But this time in 49, they brought him in and they had long conversations with him. And uh, there, he had two demands that, that kind of put some of the, and Bob Cobb in particular, but some of the other board members off. He, he wanted full control of the roster and uh, he wanted a multi-year contract and they had never done that. They'd only given their managers one-year contracts and he wanted a three-year contract. And uh, other board members kept pushing Cobb on this and Cobb ended up being kind of the, the lone voice against him. And it, it took a little while and finally Cobb came around and they hired him. And before he actually accepted the job after the final offer was put on the table, Haney made a call to Branch Rickey and Haney, needed to have a really good player development arrangement with a big league club. Uh, Hollywood had, had had deals with the St. Louis Browns one year, maybe another year, the Detroit Tigers, maybe another year, the Chicago White Sox. And you get maybe four or five players and the big league club would get first shot at anybody that you had on your roster that they liked. And it, it wasn't really helping Hollywood at all. And so Haney insisted that, that he wanted to, to, total control of the roster. He went to Branch Rickey and Rickey was open to it. And he said, I want young players. I don't want guys that are at the end of the, their career that, that uh, you're going to send to me. I want you to send me young guys and I want young guys who are fast, who are athletic, who can run because he wanted to play a speed game. He wanted a bunt. He wanted to hit and run. And, and Rickey agreed. And Rickey sent him about a dozen players. And that really turned it around. Jim Baxis was a young third baseman, had a breakout year. Irv Norin was sent, uh, and he was a local standout from Pasadena. He had a breakout. He had a tremendous year, and he was the most valuable player in the Coast League. Uh, and they got several players. Ed Sauer played right field. Mike Sandlock was a catcher. And uh, they got several pitchers, Art Shalak among them. And uh, really good talent. And, and that's the year they turned it around. And, and they won their first pennant in 49. Uh, they tapered off late in the 50 season, but came back, got in the playoffs in 51. And uh, from there, they were on a roll. I mean, they won three Coast League championships in five years. And in one of the other years, they were they lost in the final. And uh, that's that deal with Branch Rickey and, and hiring Fred Haney as the manager is what turned it all around. What was uh, you, you alluded to it before? What was the media coverage like? Because I'm getting a sense that L.A. obviously being sort of the, the, the cradle of, of of the entertainment world, certainly by that time for sure, uh, was uh, maybe a little bit more advanced, I guess, versus most of the other Pacific Coast League brethren out there, right? Uh, in terms of, well, I'm sure radio coverage, but perhaps maybe a little bit more advanced than the other teams' television coverage, right? Because this essentially is you know, arguably the second or third or fourth largest city in the country at this point, right? Where 
I'm guessing the intensity of this rivalry, both of these teams had, uh, shall we say, uh, they were more than pulling their weight when it came to uh, uh, media coverage. Well, Hollywood is the first team in minor league baseball to put their games on television. Uh, and then uh, they're the sec- uh, first team outside of the city of New York uh, to put games on television. Uh, the the uh, Dodgers and Giants each televised a game in September of 1939. And then opening day, 1940, March 30th, 1940, Hollywood televised its opening day game. And that was a, there was only, there were only 300 sets in Los Angeles at that time. And they were on an experimental station, but it really went over well. Uh, in, in the city of Long Beach, 20 miles to the South, uh, somebody put a, a set in the window of their store and a big crowd gathered to watch the game. And it spilled out into the street and uh, they had to bring the police in to, to break it up and, and get traffic going again. So Hollywood went on and did a few more games on television that year. And then again in 41, then television went on a bit of a hiatus throughout the war. But when it came back in 46, uh, baseball really jumped into it because out on the West Coast, they, didn't, they, they weren't cabled to uh, New York. And so they had to develop their own programming. And baseball was, was the perfect, uh, perfect fit. And you had at least one of the Pacific Coast League teams home every day except for Monday uh, throughout the season from April through September. So it was good three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour programming available. Um, Later, San Francisco started doing a few games. But after the war, uh, both Hollywood and the Angels uh, got nice television deals with local stations. And they were at a point where they were televising every single home game. And and there was a bit of controversy to it because visiting teams got a share of the gate. And if there was not a good crowd on a particular night, they would blame it on television and criticize the stars for uh, doing too much television and and robbing them of a share of the money that they should be taking home. And so there were concerns. But Cobb was a guy who felt that uh, television was great advertising and that television was going to generate new fans and television was going to expose the stars to the population and, and bring fans out. So he, he had a different opinion than most in the game who were worried that people would simply stay home and, and, and watch the game on television. But in terms of the media uh, beyond television, there were six uh, daily newspapers in, uh, in Los Angeles at that time. And uh, the stars got tremendous coverage as did the angels. I think some of the columnists in the San Francisco and Oakland papers were uh, a little more aggressive in digging up uh, uh, tidbits and to some extent negativity about managers and players in the Coast League. But uh, no, in Los Angeles, that was that was the king of coverage uh, between television and games on radio. And then uh, uh, and I think Cobb preceded the Angels in sending the uh, broadcasters on the road rather than doing a recreation of the away games, the broadcasters would go on the road. And then, of course, all the games on television. How about the nickname, the Twinks? Uh, Short for the Twinklers. Okay. Any idea as to how that sort of evolved? Uh, Just uh, was it a columnist one day kind of thing? Yeah, they were. Derogatory or was it uh, in earnest? And, 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 uh, you know, a little background on that. There were a number of different nicknames uh, that that, uh, the stars went by. Uh, Twinks seemed to be the one that, that, that stuck. Uh, it was short for the Twinklers. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others off the top of my head now, but there were there were a number of of nicknames in in the '39 season that uh, columnists were throwing out there, and it seemed like each columnist or uh, or beat writer had their own little pet nickname for the team. But the, but the Twinks seemed to stick and be used uh, more than any other. 
Interesting. Um, what about the players? Let's talk about the stars, quote unquote, themselves on the field. Uh, I think there's uh, you mentioned um, uh, Tommy Lasorda as an adversary that was certainly memorable in uh, stars history. How about uh, some of the other players that either stood out in uh, in play uh, in the Pacific Coast League, uh, but also maybe some that uh, went on to greater things in the uh, in the majors as well? Any names that that stood out or that you thought would, st- uh, that, you know, that you discovered along the way as uh, researching this? Well, really the first big name they had was, was Babe Herman, who was a tremendous hitter in the big leagues and maybe one of the most popular Brooklyn Dodgers ever. Uh, so signing him at the baseball winter meetings uh, in, or buying him, I should say, in the baseball winter meetings there uh, in December of, of 38 was huge for that ball club. And he led the Coast League in hitting one year and, and played with them for uh, six seasons. And during the war, went back to Brooklyn when they had the shortage of, of players. He went back up and for part of the 45 season uh, was a pinch hitter and, and got a, a few games out in the field. But he was just a tremendous, tremendous hitter. Uh, Bill Mazeroski would be the lone Hall of Famer from the Bob Cobb uh, Hollywood stars. He was a Pittsburgh product who played here uh, about the first three months of the 1956 season. And then I believe it was in early July when he, he got the call up and people I talked to that, that watched him just said, you knew, you knew he was going to be great. He was so incredible with the glove. He was just a tremendous, tremendous talent. Gus Zerniel in 48, uh, they had purchased him out of the Cleveland organization uh, and uh, he came through with just a, an enormous power season, and the White Sox bought him, and Gus went on and had a tremendous big league career. Uh, those were some of the bigger names. Uh, when they were with the Irv Noren, uh, the 49 Coast League MVP, uh, went up to the big leagues in 50 and stayed. Uh, he was an outfielder with the Senators briefly and then was traded to the Yankees when Mickey Mantle got hurt, and uh, he played in the big leagues for quite a, a number of years. So they had, they had quite a quite a, a – a roster of guys that went on to the big leagues, but uh, I'd say Zerniel and Mazeroski, probably two of the, the most successful of their guys uh, in the big leagues. Of course, they also in 1957 for about six weeks uh, had the legendary Dick Stewart, Dr. Strange glove. And uh, they were excited to get him. Pittsburgh uh, sent him there. Of course, the year before he had hit 66 home runs. And at that time, the Angels star player was a guy named Steve Bilko. And Steve Bilko was the king of Los Angeles, tremendous home run hitter and a big drawing card for the Angels. And when the Pirates sent Dick Stewart to Hollywood, uh, they were ecstatic because they thought they had the guy to take on Bilko for the headlines and uh, big box office. And in 55, Jane Mansfield had been Miss Hollywood Stars. And she was around the ball club a bit again in 56 and 57. And uh, it, she had an encounter with, with Dick on the field before a game in 57. And she said, Hey, how come your name is always in the new, how come your name's always in the newspapers and mine isn't. And Stewart looked down at her and said, cause you didn't hit no 66 home runs, but Stewart uh, hit three, I think in his first two games and then pitchers figured him out and he didn't adjust. And, uh, by mid May he was gone and, uh, nothing but a, a legend was left behind. So there, there was absolutely quality play going on, uh, both in the league, uh, between the two teams, certainly the uh, the stars themselves. Um, but I got to think, too, um, it must must have been a hell of a lot of fun um, uh, being in and around the organization, because I, I got to think there was some spillover uh, into uh, movies and television in terms of, uh, I don't know, filming of stuff, uh, 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 you know, uh, cameo appearances, both either of 
stars and or players uh, in each other's uh, uh, endeavors? Uh, was there a true Hollywood connection, so to speak? Absolutely. Got to imagine Absolutely. Some yeah, of the stories are. I can't tell you, but uh, there definitely was. Well, and... well, which ones can't you tell me? <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I look, for example, at the cover of the, of the 1957 album, uh, Andre Previn and, and Russ oh, Freeman. Oh, yes, yes, the, yes. Uh, right. The right. double play album with the uh, the, the beautiful, uh, uh, we believe, uh, topless, uh, though uh, tastefully done, uh, model wearing, um, you know, Hollywood, uh, fashionably, fashionably wearing a Hollywood star's uh, cap. Um, but, you know, I'm sure most of these people are not around anymore. We're, we're certainly interested in any sort of interesting little tidbits. Well, a, a couple that shared things with me are still around, and they've made me... All I'll say Fair is enough. there was some there was some teasing going on during games uh, between players and female fans who were, as a one player in particular told me were the biggest female actresses in Hollywood and uh, they would or would not wear certain things in order to tease the players. But uh, I'll leave it at that without getting into too much additional detail. Wow. Uh, there were, there were players on the, on the, on the diamond. How about that? There you go. There you go. Uh, there were players who dated uh, some actresses. Uh, uh, there were, uh, there were great friendships. Uh, Chuck Stevens shared that, uh, Jimmy Stewart sat near first base and, and Stewart and his wife often had uh, Chuck and his wife to their home for dinner. Uh, Gail Patrick, uh, who was Bob Cobb's first wife, uh, later uh, she was married to the literary agent uh, Cornwell Jackson, and they lived on a huge estate. And on Mondays, they would throw big barbecues and pool parties for the, the players and their families. Uh, players would golf with Bing Crosby. And yes, this did this did uh, evolve into motion picture opportunities. And Bill Frawley, who was Fred Mertz on I Love Lucy, as you alluded to earlier, uh, films that he was in, Kill the Umpire being one, uh, he would, if they needed... Uh, Extras, why, you know, he would arrange for Hollywood players to, to come in and, and be the extras. The the Stratton story, there's a lot of Hollywood players that were the extras. Um, in Pride of the Yankees, uh, the Lou Gehrig uh, biopic, uh, that the long distance hitting scenes were done by Babe Herman because Gary Cooper just couldn't pull it off. He was not left-handed. Um, he was not tremendously athletic. And they actually pulled uh, Babe Herman of the Hollywood stars in there, and they they had to make them long shots so that people would not quickly recognize it was Babe Herman. But yeah, they were in a number of movies, and then there were movies like 7-Eleven Ocean Boulevard, a great crime film that was actually shot in Gilmore Field during a Hollywood stars game, the Jackie Robinson story that was shot partly in Gilmore Field. So yeah, there were a number of stars players who uh, got bit parts in in motion pictures Irv Norin told me a fun story that you know they figured out a little bit about how things worked and what they could get away with and there was a particular game scene that was going to be shot to wrap up filming it was going to be the last day the players were needed and this particular scene called for a ball to be hit to Norin in center field and for him to make a throw to third base and Norrin intentionally airmailed the throw way over the head of the third baseman so that they would have to be brought back the next day to shoot the scene again. And all the players would get an additional day's pay. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, a number of players got uh, great opportunities. And and uh, then as television evolved and there were game shows and whatnot, they got opportunities there in the, the mid to late 50s as well. I, I got to think, being a 
a, a player for the Stars and maybe uh, the Angels as well, uh, you know, short of being in the major leagues, this is probably the best kind of situation you could be in given all the ancillary benefits that come along with it. There were, you know, the, the, there's stories abound that players, Bilko was one in particular that was making so much with the Angels that he didn't want to go to the big leagues. Um, there, there were guys that were very, very content and very happy uh, to, to be in the Pacific Coast League and particularly to be in, in Southern California at that time. Uh, I know George Genovese, when he was taken in the Rule 5 draft by the Washington Senators, uh, he shared with me that uh, when he went in to negotiate his contract, they offered him 5000 which at that time was the major league minimum in 1950. And he argued that playing for Hollywood, he had made a bit over 6000 the year before. And uh, the Senators wouldn't budge. But, uh, yeah, those guys did well financially. And, of course, there were a lot of different opportunities. Uh, uh, many of the guys worked in the community and had jobs in the offseason there. Uh, and, and it just enhanced the popularity of the clubs. Guys would work in sporting goods stores or would sell cars. And, and, and people would come to buy from them specifically. So it was, it was quite a unique environment and a, and a unique, uh, just a unique time in baseball history. Well, I, sadly, though, as the 50s rolled on, it all comes to a somewhat crashing halt. Um, maybe you can sign a, kind of give a little bit of, I mean, I think most fans kind of know sort of, the, I guess, the, the rest of the story, so to speak. But um, what's it like uh, in those years just prior to uh, the Dodgers and the Giants uh, uh, dramatically making their move? Um, I, was there a sense amongst the stars and the organization that, uh, this wasn't going to last much longer. That 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 MLB would at some point just adjunct at some and and make uh, this team and the Pacific Coast League kind of second tier and or banish it, if you will, away from you know as the big leagues. How much notice do you think people kind of knew and, and felt? Did they knew they were on you know a short a short leash, so to speak, or, or what? What was sort of the dynamic prior to this move? of the big leaguers to, to the West coast. Well, I, I don't think that the, the people running clubs in the coast league ever felt that they were not going to get, I think they remained confident they could get that major league status. I think that they had a lot of confidence. It wasn't shared around them, but Cobb in particular uh, really felt strongly that that was going to happen. And I mean, they, they knew that, you know, the, I mean, he was hedging his bets. He went and, and bought a piece of a, of a class C or D club in Phoenix and rebranded it the Phoenix Stars. And part of his motivation was to be able to own the territory. So if they had to relocate the Hollywood Stars, they were going to take him to Phoenix. Uh, but at the same time, in uh, 1952, he had been invited by the chief of police to come up into the hills uh, north of downtown Los Angeles to the police academy. And uh, when Cobb met with him up there, he looked around and, and he was he was really taken. I mean, he he felt that this area, Chavez Ravine, was the ideal place for a ballpark. And and he brought a close friend up the next day who agreed. They talked about the area would one day be served by three freeways. And and Cobb was just convinced he had found the ideal site for a ballpark for the Hollywood Stars. And he hired a renowned architect, Styles Clements, and they developed a, a plan for a stadium. Uh, the stadium had uh, uh, I mean, it was decades ahead of anything in baseball. It had a restaurant, it had cocktail lounge, childcare. It had, uh, they called them cabanas, which today we call sweets. Uh, it was way ahead of the game. And he started pitching it to the city 
and to the county. Now, the county wanted to give him other land. They tried to direct him elsewhere, and he wasn't interested. But uh, ultimately, the city just felt that that uh, the Coast Lakes plan was not going to fly. And and the mayor said as much publicly that, that he just wasn't going to put stock in, in the Coast Lakes quest. And then when the uh, when L.A. did not get the A's when they were sold instead to the Johnson family in Kansas City, uh, there was a lot of criticism of, of the city leadership in Los Angeles for not doing more to try and get that team as, a, as a, an L.A. team. And the mayor had a, a press conference and he held up this drawing of a stadium and he said, I have a plan for, and we're going to build a stadium for a big league team in Chavez Ravine. And he had basically taken Cobb's plan. Uh, now in 57, when Walter O'Malley made his fact-finding trip to Los Angeles, he told all the city leaders he was not meeting with any of them until he first met with Bob Cobb. And they met for a couple of hours in Mr. O'Malley's suite at the Stadler Hilton, where uh, Cobb laid out the blueprints and the plans uh, for the ballpark that he had, he and Stiles Clements had developed. And O'Malley was, was, he was really excited about it. And he told the city leaders, this is where I'm going. And some wanted to divert him into Wrigley field, which, uh, just was a non-starter. Others wanted him to, to make the Coliseum a permanent home, and that just wasn't possible. And he was insistent that he wanted to be in uh, in Chavez Ravine, and, and that ultimately ended up happening. But there was an inevitability. I mean, even on fans, uh, there were you know young children. This was their team, and they were they were really huge fans of the Angels and the Stars. And and parents were trying to. I mean, I talked to several who said their parents you know, maybe in 55 started priming them because they saw teams moving. You know, the Browns had moved to Baltimore. The A's had moved to uh, Kansas City. The Braves had moved to Milwaukee. So you started seeing teams move, and the idea of a big league team moving possibly to Los Angeles was becoming more realistic. And, uh, you know, parents were starting to to kind of counsel their kids that, uh, yeah, this is great, but you haven't seen anything until you see big league baseball. And so there was an inevitability there, uh, at least in 55, 56, that it was coming. And uh, ultimately, uh, it, uh, the, uh, the Angels moved to Spokane, and Hollywood almost stayed. The city of Long Beach had just broken ground on a ballpark, Blair Field, which is still there today. And they made a run at trying to get the, the stars to come in there, but uh, they couldn't make it work. Do, do, you, do you sense from your research that in 57 people knew this was going to end? Or was it still like a ton of bricks when? No, they, they knew it was. They, and, and, and as I look at it, you know, the history that I had previously read, and then when I really dove into this, I mean, at the end of the, at the, end of the 56 season, the Dodgers swapped minor league clubs with the Cubs. Uh, so the Cubs had owned, the Wrigley's had owned the uh, LA Angels and Wrigley Field, and the Dodgers owned the Fort Worth Cats and their ballpark. And, uh, and O'Malley sold the ballpark and then traded the Fort Worth Cats to Wrigley for the LA Angels after the 56 season. And then he, with the money from the sale of the park in Fort Worth, he bought uh, Wrigley Field uh, from Wrigley as well in LA. And so as I look at that, I thought, well, what other reason is there for, for uh, O'Malley to do this but to, to gain ownership of the territory? So to me, it was a, in 56, it was, it was a done deal. They were coming. Uh, I don't think there's any two ways about it. So, uh, yeah, and, and I think that's that's lost on the on sort of the bigger story. I think everybody understands or 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 has heard various flavors of narrative around 
how the two New York teams came to, you know, conquest the uh, the West Coast. But I think embedded in that is probably the lesser discussed story of how essentially Los Angeles's uh, baseball life got completely turned turned around. I mean, you had all this uh, uh, minor league rivalry, I mean, you know, right through the 50s. And literally in one season, like 1958, it's all been dropped and it becomes Dodger, Dodger, Dodgers, 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 right? And it's almost, you know, literally all that sort of stars and, and angels history just kind of just vanishes. It's almost uh, almost like an abandonment, if you will, and let alone the teams themselves. It was tough for some of the young fans in particular who had their favorite players, had their favorite uh, uh, their their favorite habits around the ballpark, may have been members of the Knothole Gang. Uh, yeah, it, it was tough on the young fans. Uh, adults, I think there was a lot of enthusiasm that Major League Baseball was finally coming and, and finally here. But uh, yeah, it, it was very tough, I think, on a lot of people. Um, in terms of the employees of, of the two clubs, a lot of the Hollywood Stars employees went to work for the Dodgers. Uh, Mr. Cobb's secretary became uh, uh, secretary to Buzzy Bavese, the Dodger general manager. Uh, uh, their concessions uh, coordinator, their box office staff, their ticket sales staff, they all went to work for the Dodgers. And then you know, four years later, when the Angels were granted an expansion franchise in Los Angeles, uh, Gene Autry, who had been an investor in the Hollywood Stars, was the principal owner. And he brought a number of, of former Hollywood Stars players in. And, and Fred Haney, the former manager, was hired to be the first general manager of the Angels. So you had a lot of Hollywood Stars people with, with those those two clubs. But yeah, to, to have that, that tight loyalty to the, the Angels and the Stars, uh, there were some fans that had a tough time for a while. Let me give you sort of a wrap-up uh, kind of question here. Um, and we ask this question of a lot of guests, uh, especially for teams uh, that uh, have relocated, uh, but certainly for teams that are no, lo- no longer around for whatever reason or just previously incarnated and whatnot. And that and, and this is a little bit of a wrinkle because these are two, um, well, in essence, two versions of a of a club that uh, were part of, of a minor league, a top-tier minor league at that um, and, and that is that's this sort of general question of where, if anywhere, does the, uh, shall we say, official or unofficial memory and or ongoing legacy of this club live? Uh, you know, do, do the California Angels, sorry, the Los Angeles, the Angels of Los, Los Angeles Angels of whatever they're called this minute. Uh, or the Dodgers, right? Do, do any of do either of those two teams legitimately lay any claim to a throwback game or games for these the clubs that preceded them, and in particular the Stars, right? Because I, I, you're you're more than subtly hinting that uh, there is sort of almost an unrecognized uh, foundation there around the idea of of a stadium where it is in in Chavez Ravine, right? Uh, some of the innovations that happened with baseball, especially with broadcasting in Los Angeles, right? Some of these things, you know, were literally pioneered by by the stars and and or the angels. And uh, is there any legitimate right, if you will, to sort of do throwback games and nostalgia and that kind of stuff? Or do you think it's because obviously now in today's big business of sports, right, there's a lot of money attached to those throwbacks and and and. Uh, in some cases, frankly, teams just, uh, uh, you know, laying, laying claim where their heritage or even the statistics uh, don't uh, even officially sort of, uh, of connect. I guess what I'm saying is if, if I was or still am somehow a fan of the stars, 
is there a place where I can be sort of legitimately, uh, you know, uh, and humbly in remembrance of such? Or, or is it, you know, would it be a bastardization if the Dodgers were to have a throwback game with Stars uniforms? Well, I, I think the fact that there is no recognition of the many, many, many innovations the Hollywood Stars brought to baseball is was a huge motivator in my writing this book. Um, there's so many things we see every game in professional baseball that, that trace to Hollywood, the grooming of the infield between in, in the middle innings, uh, uh, the gourmet foods, uh, the concession stands. I mean, there's so many things. Obviously, the Stars wore shorts. And they were the first team to do that. There's so many things that uh, that that as I learned these things and found that there is absolutely no recognition given to the Hollywood Stars for that, it was a huge motivator for me to write this book. And no, uh, the Dodgers and the Angels – no, they 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 never recognize uh, their predecessors in Los Angeles. Um, they do have Hollywood stars games, uh, but they have nothing to do with the old PCL Hollywood stars. They are softball games on the field involving celebrities, uh, which the Hollywood stars did do. But uh, yeah, there's there's really no recognition, and and I think it would be kind of fun, you know, you, as you say, they they do throwback games, uh, which have been very well received all around the major leagues and to, to tap into the old uh, angels and, uh, and the old Hollywood stars and uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, selling some of their memorabilia or their, their replica merchandise or just having a game where the players are wearing those old uniforms. I think it would be a lot of fun and it would bring back some great memories for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there are the heritages of, uh, you know, obviously one was the angels being expansion team, uh, in major league baseball, but the Dodgers and all their, their, uh, Brooklyn glory prior. Right. But, um, you know, again, baseball and Los Angeles were synonymous for decades, right. Prior to these two teams arriving. And, you know, the stars story in many respects is, is evidence of that. I, I just, it, um, it just seems, uh, frankly, a missed opportunity, right? Because uh, well, we see this though all the time. I, some of this just be, is just you know, uh, older generations of sports fans kind of just yelling at the at the sky, right? But it's 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 not like I guess it's lost on on lots of current fans of of, of the sport, which is understandable, I guess. But you know, there is history that happened before all of this, right? The Dodgers didn't magically show up in 1958 for no reason, right? There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes. The stars were part of that, uh, even though it wasn't sort of mostly known or or it was laying groundwork that just atop a, a which, right? I, I think O'Malley, you know, just neatly sort of uh, figures out Dodger Stadium without sort of, you know, the, this, the story you're talking about, about the stars looking at that, that plot of land years prior, right? Well, very true. Uh, there's so much uh, groundwork that was laid by those two teams for the success of Major League Baseball in Los Angeles, you'd, you'd like to see it uh, gain some recognition. But then again, I think when the Dodgers came in, they wanted to, to create their own brand. They uh, uh, Their station wanted to, the station they uh, aligned with, wanted to continue using the LA Angels broadcaster and instead of Vin Scully. And, and that was a non-starter with Walter O'Malley. But uh, the, the Stars broadcaster was Mark Scott, who was later the host of Home Run Derby. Um, you know, he had no role when the Dodgers came out. Uh, there were a lot of columnists pushing O'Malley to, to uh, pr- create a role for Bob Cobb, and that didn't happen. So yeah, I think I think the Dodgers wanted to, to just cr- be their own brand and and not 
be connected to, not like the Padres in, in San Diego, where they embrace the name of the, the minor league club, went with a different uh, color scheme, but uh, embrace the, the minor league name. Uh, that wasn't going to happen in, in Los Angeles. But you'd like to see maybe a game, uh, whether it's some sort of an exhibition game or one game a year where they would uh, remember uh, their predecessors and, and the teams that laid the groundwork. And is there any kind of uh, a plaque or, or, or a statue or anything around where um, where uh, the old Gilmore Field stood uh, in and around the CBS uh, complex there or Farmer's Market area? It's in a studio, one of the studios there at CBS Television City. There is a plaque, um, and it's as close as they could get it uh, to where Home Plate was uh, with the permission of CBS. So apparently, the exact spot... There's equipment that, and I'm sure I'm not sure if it's large cameras or what, but there, there's equipment that runs right over that spot to such a, a, a frequency that they didn't want to put the plaque there, so they they put it as close as they possibly could. But yeah, there's a plaque within CBS Television City where uh, uh, where home plate once was, and then over at the site there, I think there's this very small park at the site of where uh, Wrigley Field was over on Avalon, and uh, they've got a plaque over there as well. Interesting. And I guess the last question is, and I have, I, it's been a while since I've sort of been on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Did, did they ever maybe memorialize the team on the walk? Or was that past well, tense? No, not on the walk, but in the farmer's market, which the Gilmore family still owns. Uh, there is a display case with uh, replica uniforms, programs, uh, memorabilia. And then in the company offices, which I think is really cool, in the in the in the particularly the marketing department, they've got beautiful frame matted black and white game action photos hanging on the walls uh, there in the in the office of, of Hollywood Stars Baseball, which is really fun to see. All right, there it is. Uh, on the next trip to Los Angeles, uh, once we get back on an airplane again, uh, for for the proverbial day job, uh, one must go, I do, to CBS Television City uh, and uh, get myself over to find uh, that plaque and uh, some of those other memories of what I guess was uh, the uh, former site of uh, the old uh, the old stadium of the Hollywood stores, uh, stars, excuse me, Gilmore Field. I think it's fascinating uh, that I uh, it, that that was sort of the location and sort of the hub uh, for that team uh, for so many years. Um, and uh, as we alluded to, so many other sort of uh, uh, tangents that, that uh, we can uh, remember and revel in uh, the stars story. I think I'll have a have myself a Cobb salad sometime this week. Uh, in honor of Robert uh, Howard Cobb, the uh, majority owner of the Stars. Uh, and there's also some great uh, footage out there of the old Gilmore Field. Uh, there was apparently a, a show called Rescue 8 uh, back in the day. I want to say it was in the, in the 50s. Uh, and there's an episode uh, called The Ferris Wheel. You can find it on uh, on YouTube. Uh, and there's a, a storyline in there. It uh, talks about some kind of uh, old amusement park and, and the demolition of, of Gilmore uh, Field. Uh, was sort of baked into uh, that episode. And uh, like I said, it's on YouTube. The show was called Rescue 8, and the episode is called The Ferris Wheel. And it's really cool because you can see a whole bunch of the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the facade there of, uh, of the old Gilmore Field. And, and Lord knows we, uh, we'd love to sort of help stir up the pot uh, to see if we can help uh, not only Dan, but uh, just baseball fans everywhere uh, dig up some of the, uh, the, the footage of 
of some of these games, especially these derbies between the LA Angels and the Stars in the Pacific Coast League heyday, um, we know that there were uh, there was uh, game action out there. It was on television regularly. It was on radio regularly. Uh, this was uh, these were you know these were professional top tier major league broadcasts even before they were major league teams there. So uh, let's get uh, to it, uh, Good Seats Nation, and try to see if we can find uh, some of that footage out there of not only the Stars but uh, the uh, the Angels and maybe some other Pacific uh, Coast League action. Uh, once uh, when they were playing in Los Angeles. Um, the book uh, in the interim that we'll have to tide you over, it's called Lights, Camera, Fastball, How the Hollywood Stars Changed Baseball by our guest again this week, Dan Taylor. And it's published by our pals at Roman and Littlefield. Uh, you can, of course, get it wherever fine books are found. Uh, yes, you can get the Kindle edition, whatever you want to do. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to give us a couple of shekels of love, uh, for uh, our little efforts, uh, by all means, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number th- uh, 208 with Dan Taylor, and you'll find a convenient link to the book and to, uh, at Amazon. And of course, you'll get it about as quickly as humanly possible. We thank you for uh, purchasing your uh, your media that way, because uh, again, we get a couple of a uh, couple of uh, pennies and nickels and dimes, and uh, it helps keep our lights on and our heat on as the uh, springtime hopefully gets here soon in the Chicago area. Uh, we appreciate that, uh, of course. If you want to follow us on social media, we'll go right ahead. You can do that. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Facebook. There's a page devoted to us. You'll find us on Instagram uh, at Good Seats Still Available. You will also find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, would you like to send us some email? You could do that too. Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's the way to do that. Uh, let's see what else you want to get our weekly email newsletter, get a little head start on uh, what the episode topic is going to be for the uh, coming week. Uh, just go to the website and you'll uh, find a little link there. Just give us your, uh, your name and your email address and voila, you're in the know and will be added to said list. Again, good seats, still available.com is going to find all of the old episodes and all the ones to come. Uh, and of course, if you haven't subscribed to us, what the hell are you waiting for friends? Uh, wherever you get podcasts, just uh, click on the uh, subscribe link or follow link, whatever it's called these days. And please do so. And of course, please, please, please rate and review us in uh, wherever form you can do, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, frankly, ratings and reviews are garnered. Uh, we, of course, appreciate uh, that. And of course, that helps lots of extra people, uh, maybe like you, maybe not like you, discover the show and uh, subscribe and follow themselves. So we appreciate you doing that too. Uh, that's the least you can do since we don't charge you nothing for this here little show. So uh, uh, that would uh, certainly help float our boat and then some. We appreciate that. And of course, we could not do this show without the great Herculean efforts of the the one, the great Dr. Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Thank you, kind sir, for all the uh, knob twiddling this week. And uh, thanks to you all for listening uh, thus far. And uh, take care until next week. Enjoy the continued uh, college hoops action. And uh, hopefully a little spring training is finally uh, getting you going too. And all kinds of great uh, stuff from sports coming back to life. Let's hope. Stay safe until then, okay, friends? We'll see you next week. Take care and ciao. Hey, we got ourselves a swinging crowd here tonight. That's wonderful. Nice to have all of you folks here at the second show at the Sands Hotel. We sit and tend to swing a little bit and wail a little bit. We we. Hey, hello there. We got a stranger in our midst. Welcome to our club. I'm so glad you came. 
I hope you like what we're going to do for you. We'd like to tell you about our favorite town, Morty. It's the eighth wonder of the world, the ninth and tenth as well. That fabulous town called Hollywood where my favorite people dwell. Now some folks can knock it and holler, take it away. But every time they knock it, you're going to hear me say, Hooray for Hollywood, that screwy ballyhooey Hollywood. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic. And just a good-looking tan And any barmaid can be a star maid If she acquires a healthy tan Hooray for Hollywood Where you're stupendous if you're even good Where every picture is a super-duper And Gary Cooper says, yep, and is still understood New York, take it away, give me L.A. Hooray for Hollywood Let's take a stroll down any street Let's head for something fine You never know what stars you meet this noon But the stars shine This bus is leaving We're ready to go Let's go Now here is a gent That I think everybody here ought to know Hooray for Jimmy Cag I make these gestures So my pants won't drag I make these gestures. That was Jim Williams. <laughs> what movie star could tell that Al Capone? You're just a phony. And then do George M. Cohan. Oh, give him a hand. Oh, that Marlon Brando. That very famous method acting man. Marlon Brando. Oh, Stella. <laughs> when Marlon Brando speaks... A simple line can take like, you know what I mean, like, uh, like weeks and weeks and weeks. But anything that Marlon Brando can't do, can't carry Grant do, you must have rocks in your hood. He's gallivanting, he's Cary Grantic, he's Mr. Hollywood. Let's not forget who's headlining here. I don't care if you're a girl or not. Whoever heard of a girl trumpet player anyway? That's ridiculous. What kind of lipstick do you use? Wow! In case you've just tuned in, I'll make this announcement large. The singers now rule Hollywood, practically in charge. They're acting up a storm, and they just sing now and then. So with your kind permission, a few of the singing men... Life's a swinging thing From dusk to dawn It's ring-a-ding-ding-ding Right next to Frankie Boy You'll find Old Dino A Baz Davino On Dino Vino Looks good Oh, holy mackerel, Sapphire, let me spleen here a minute there. If you're a quibbler, I'll throw in him. Perhaps your path is a way of matters. Tony Bennett takes just a minute. It's some Arabian astrophabian. Get out of here. Marty Stevens, off 
Brooks to LA.